0: Well, good morning, ARC. How's everybody this morning? Good, good. It's good to see you this morning in the house of the Lord. Before we turn to God's word, just a couple of announcements, things to uh, bring to your attention real quickly. Uh, first off, I understand that last week we welcomed a number of new members into the church, uh, but I wasn't here. And since I got the mic now, I want to welcome you, too. So if you're a new member at ARC, if you joined a couple Thursdays ago, just stand so we can give God praise for you and welcome you into the church family. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Now, though, if you stood, I have another announcement for you. After the service, I have my camera. I need to take photographs of you for our members' directory, okay? So see me after the service, good hair day, bad hair day, and all. And uh, let me take a quick picture so we can update our membership directory and circulate that to folks. Uh, also, I just want to thank you, church family, for praying for me over these last couple of weeks. Uh, as I've been traveling and speaking in various places, a couple of weeks ago I was in Minneapolis speaking at uh, Bethlehem College and Seminaries, uh, used to be Desiring God's Pastors Conference. They asked me to speak on Galatians 2. Uh, I had the privilege of doing that, and then the week following was in Dallas, Texas at the Linger Conference, where I preached on Psalm 142, and then at our friend Bo Hughes's and Village Church Denton, uh, who have been supporters of us from the first day. Uh, preaching for Bo on that Sunday. They got three services, so brother was well out, uh, on Romans 13, 1 to 7. Uh, and I felt your prayers and felt your encouragement. I just want to thank you for your partnership in the gospel uh, in that way. And one of the things that makes something like that possible is having a team of pastors that uh, actually are, are more competent than you are. And so I love sort of getting the notes when I come back, people talking about, man, Jahil preached an impassioned uh, sermon on prayer. I heard everything from impassion to, uh, what was it, Chloe? Cracking. Yeah, a cracking sermon uh, on prayer. And uh, we just praise God for Jahil's ministry and the ministry of the Word uh, and the encouragement, brother, to the positive grace um, that you've left in the church family. But thank you to those who came out this past weekend to uh, New Macedonia Baptist Church for uh, their little mini-conference on mass incarceration uh, it, was a, it was an encouraging time, a powerful time, and uh, they were encouraged by your presence and asked me to relay uh, their thanks and, and, and whatnot. Now, we're going to turn to God's Word. If you need a Bible this morning, there's some persons uh, coming down the uh, aisles with Bibles, so just raise your hand uh, if you need a Bible, and we will supply one to you. Uh, you'd be helped because we're going to do an overview of the entire book of Colossians uh, and so we're going to be pointing to a number of passages in Colossians, so you'll be helped to follow us along, follow along with us uh, if you need a Bible. Now, if you raise your hand and you got the Bible, and um, you don't have a Bible at home, you don't have a Bible of your own, we want you to accept that as a gift from us. We want you to take that Bible, make it your own, and we want you to be owned by that Bible, uh, to read it, to treasure it, to cherish it, to discover its meaning so that you might discover the God that we're worshiping this morning more fully. Alrighty, last announcement. We're going to start a new series in the book of Colossians. We're going to walk through the book slowly, Lord willing, about a paragraph, a sermon. And here's what I want you to invite you to do along with me and some others. Let's memorize Colossians together. All right, so the people are laughing. They don't, oh, ye of unbelief! You know, <laughs> you've probably gotten a, a sermon card. Uh, you'll see how the the book is sort of divided up. And uh, let's each week remember basically about a paragraph, which is like three or four sentences, uh, each week of the book of Colossians. And when we come before we have the sermon, I'll open the floor for somebody to recite it for us. Doesn't have to be you. Completely voluntary. Uh, it's wonderful to see other people struggling like me uh, to work their way through memorizing scripture but let's hide God's word in our hearts together and let's start with Colossians and let's, let's memorize uh, Colossians together so for next week uh, we're going to be preaching Lord willing Colossians chapter 1 verses 1 to 8 I want to invite you to memorize Colossians 1 1 to 8 and next week we will actually think on it in the sermon is that alright? who's with me? All right. All right. I I remember all the faces. All right. All right. Not every hand went up. I remember your faces, too. (laughs) Turn with me to the book of Colossians. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you praise for this indescribable gift. You spoke through prophets and apostles. By your spirit, you inspired them, you carried them along to write down your very words. And in your power and in your kindness, you preserved their writings And protected them so that we, centuries later, would have it, Lord, in our hands. Be able to read it. Be able to study it. Be able to memorize it. So that we would be able to hear your voice in your word. And know you, the one true and living God. We wouldn't know you, we wouldn't know you well unless you, Lord, stooped down to speak to us. For we can't climb to heaven and the wisdom of man is not nearly complete enough to arrive at the knowledge of you all by ourselves. You had to tell us what you were like and you had to describe your love and you had to explain our condition So that we might be able to really and truly know you. So we thank you for your word. And we thank you realizing, Lord, that not everybody has your word. It's not translated into every language. Not every people group, Lord, has access to your Bible. But you, in your kindness, has decided that we would be born where we were born. And we would have, Lord, free access to your word Help us not to take it for granted. Help us to treasure it. Help us to lay hold to it. Help us to believe it. Help us to live it until we see you face to face. Oh Lord, would you feed our souls from Colossians this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You ever heard the phrase mystery religion? Mystery religions in the ancient world were pretty influential. They were widespread and practiced by many. They were cults. And I use that word not just in the uh, kind of negative way in which we normally use the word cults, but they were kind of societies. They were groupings of people who adhered to these secret teachings. That's what mystery religions were known for, their secret teachings. And in holding these secret teachings, the the leaders of mystery religions would teach people that unless they had this secret knowledge, unless they were initiated into the, the mysteries of that faith, that in some ways their lives weren't complete, or they could not know God, or they could not know the the riches and the fullness of God. That this knowledge, which only they held, was necessary to a full life. You can imagine then what kind of power those groups could hold over people. For the threat of not having that knowledge meant not actually having a full life and really knowing God. Such religions have existed for as long as men have been exiled from the Garden of Eden. They exist even in our community. So even today, many of the cults we encounter are basically modern day mystery religions. Groups like Kemetic Science or the Moorish Science Temple. The five percenters, even the nation of Islam and, and civic groups like the Masons, are all kind of secret societies, mystery, religion, kinds of cults and groups. And they all make the promise that if you acquire the secret knowledge, you will understand then the true key to life and have the fullness that only they can provide. It's in this way, that every ma- re- mystery religion, mystery religion, makes the same basic claim you and I need something in addition to Jesus in order to be full, in order to be complete. That there is something lacking in Christ that only they can supply. Now in many respects, that's the background, that's the context to the letter of Colossians. Colossae was a small town in modern day Turkey, Southeast Asia. It it was about 12 miles from some bigger cities like Hierapolis and Laodicea, which are mentioned in the book. In the ancient days, Colossae was a crossroads town. There was a a street running or big thoroughfare running east and west and one running north and south that went straight through the town. And so like most crossroad towns, like most cities like Washington, D.C., what you had then there were people from all over the place, from various different cultures and ethnicities and, and religions. And what you get there is this kind of cosmopolitan attitude. This kind of eclectic attitude. It takes a little bit from here, a little bit from there, mashes it all together in something that people imagine to be more complete. That's the background in Colossae when Paul writes this letter. And Paul writes this letter with one main point. If you want to get the whole of the sermon and the whole of the letter, here it is in this one simple point. Jesus Christ is everything. Jesus Christ is everything. Now to give an overview of this letter this morning, I want to sort of ask and answer three questions. Number one, why was the letter to the Colossians written? Why was it written? Number two, who is Jesus in the book of Colossians? Who is this Jesus in the book of Colossians? And number three, what does it mean to be a Christian? According to the book of Colossians. What does it mean to be a Christian according to this letter? Colossians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Y'all were nervous, weren't you? I thought I was going to read the whole thing right then, did you? We're going to work through most of it. Why was Colossians written? Well, we have no record of Paul ever visiting this town. In fact, if you look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, it suggests that the Colossian Christians had not seen Paul face to face. You see what he says there? I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So this is not a church that Paul founded. This is not a church that Paul had even visited at this point. However, Paul mentions a man, name, a man named Epaphras at the beginning and the end of the letter. Look at Colossians chapter 1 verse 8. Apostle Paul writes there. he says, you learned, referring to the gospel, you learned the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. It was likely through Epaphras that this church was founded. And Epaphras was a, a traveler and a companion with the Apostle Paul. And Epaphras had gone to Colosse and preached the gospel there. And, and they had heard it and believed and were formed into a, a New Testament church, into a congregation there. And Paul mentions this same Epaphras near the end of the letter. So look at chapter 4, verse 12. He says there, Epaphras, who is one of you, meaning a Colossian himself, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Notice this, Epaphras. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. See, from this we get a a profile of Epaphras, don't we? He's a fellow servant, chapter 1, verse 8. He's a faithful minister who worked with Paul. And he's from Colossae. And he's a faithful man of prayer. We've just heard three weeks of sermons on prayer. And I think Epaphras would have been pleased. He's struggling in his prayers on behalf of the Colossians. He's praying for their full maturity. And he's praying for their assurance that they would be certain that they are saved in Christ. So it's Epaphras who starts this church. And it's likely Epaphras who's now traveled to Paul. And giving Paul an update on his church. Because if you look at Colossians chapter 4 near the end there, we learn something vital about Paul himself. Verse 18, the very last verse, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And he says this, remember my chains. Paul's in prison at this point. Likely in prison in Rome. And from that prison cell he is preaching the gospel to the guards in Rome. And from that prison cell he's continuing to hear news of the church in various places and he's writing letters to be taken to those churches, to be read and to be studied as he continues to sort of shepherd and lead the church as an apostle. Ephesians was written at this same time and likely Philemon as well, along with Colossians. And So Epaphras has likely come to Paul in Rome maybe even volunteered to be in jail himself with Paul in Rome. And now Paul has written this letter in response to the message that he's gotten from Epaphras about the the sort of state of things in Colossae. And and what was the news? I think as we survey this letter, there are two general parts, two, two parts to the news about Colossae. First is this, solid faith. There is the good report. Paul mentions this in Colossians chapter 1 verses 3 to 6. Notice there, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since today you heard it and understood the grace of God in true. You see the gospel has rooted itself in the city of Colossae in the hearts of these Colossian Christians. The gospel has been spreading, notice there, it's been running around the world. In fact Paul speaks here as if it's reached the ends of the world already. And everywhere it's gone it's borne fruit. It has increased. It has produced what God has intended his word to produce as he sent it out. It has produced the, the, the living, saving faith that these Colossians have. They've heard it. They've understood the grace of God in truth. They have believed it and they have been saved. Colossians 2 verse 5 has this bit of news. Paul says there, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Again, this means that they were were well-rooted as a church. And not only that, unlike the church that Titus was pastoring, where he's sort of been left there to put things in order, Epaphras apparently has been more effective there. In Colossae, this church is well-ordered by God's Word. They live and they worship according to God's Word. When they assemble as a congregation, is in keeping with the very order that God has purposed for his church. Paul hears this report and he gives God praise and he encourages them that he knows that they stand in good order and in firm faith. So that's the first part of the news, but there's something else sort of lurking in this book. There's not only the solid faith, but there's some slick teaching going on. some slick teaching going on. It appears to be some people who are there in Colossae who have began to sort of practice this syncretism that we were talking about, this blending of different religious perspectives under the sort of name of Christian. Now Paul doesn't name these false teachers. And in many ways he doesn't get as explicit as he does in other letters about the, the nature of the teaching. So we're left to sort of hear the alarm sound and we're left to kind of put together a profile, if you will. So he sounds the, the first note of alarm in Colossians 2 verse 4. You see what he says there? I say this, he's writing this letter, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And IV translates that with fine, fine-sounding arguments. Paul, perhaps based on Epaphras' report, he wants the Colossians to be on their watch for things that sound right, but are in fact quite wrong. In the rest of Colossians 2, we get this sketch, this profile of some of the things that sound correct, but are misleading. So look at Colossians 2 verse 8. Paul says there, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So whatever this teaching is, Paul calls it philosophy here. And it's a philosophy of the Christian life that sounds right, but it actually enslaves you. It captures you and, and makes you a slave to it. And notice there, the philosophy is not according to Christ. It's not in keeping with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for these Colossian Christians. Rather, this is in accord with human tradition and in accord with what he says he is the elemental spirits of the world. A a difficult phrase to sort of translate, but best translated like this, the ABCs of the world, the basic building blocks of the world. So these people have sort of slid over into the error of structuring a view of the Christian life That depends not upon Christ, but upon human tradition and upon a kind of worldliness. Notice something else, verse 16. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. It seems that this philosophy in some way focused on dietary laws and religious holidays. Maybe it has some Jewish roots to it there. There was a synagogue there of some size. And perhaps some Jewish Christians have been bringing over part of their Jewish background into the sort of Christian church and worship. But Paul doesn't deal with it the way he names and deals with Jewish error in other books like Galatians and Romans. He deals more generally. So maybe it has a pagan origin. In either case, there were these people in Colossae, notice, passing judgment on the spiritual lives of Christians based on their philosophy, which itself was based upon human tradition and a kind of worldliness not based upon Christ. So here's a church that's in danger, as, he's, as Paul says in Galatians 5, 1 and 2, or 6, 1 and 2, of biting and devouring each other in this judging of one another. Colossians 2, verses 18 and 19. Paul keeps going. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. So apparently these people thought that their judgments were so important and so right and so matter of fact, that based upon those judgments, they actually could disqualify people in their claims to be Christian, in their access to Christ. Notice there, they live by rules, insisting on asceticism. Asceticism is the philosophy or the practice of treating the body harshly, of of living by a strict set of rules, of denying pleasure, in order to sort of uh, try and grow in holiness very often and self-control. It seems right. If you need to grow in self-control to articulate a long list of rules, but Paul has something to say about that a little bit later. They called Christians to live this ascetic life and to, to deny themselves pleasure and to treat themselves harshly. And, and notice, this all comes up out of their own pride and sensuous mind. Paul says that they are puffed up. And when he says they have a sensuous mind, he's, that's in contrast to a spiritual mind. They are fleshly. They are worldly. They're, they're thinking about this, Paul is telling us, is sinful rather than Christ-like. Striking. And notice that devastating description there. They have lost connection with the head. They have lost connection with Christ, who is the head of the body. It's from Christ that life comes and nourishment comes. But they have been severed from that because of this philosophy. They're in the church, but they're not of the church, apparently. Paul basically summarizes the problem in verse 23. Notice there, chapter 2, verse 23. These have, there it is again, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Martin Luther, the great reformer, is a great illustration of this, isn't he? He had gone into the monastic life and become a Roman Catholic monk because he had basically been scared into the, into the monkhood. Is that a word, monkhood? Uh, he'd been to the monastery. And as a monk, he was plagued with this question of how could he be right with God? And he lacked what Paul is writing about here, assurance that he was forgiven by God and accepted with God. And Martin Luther threw himself headlong into the customary practices of monks in the Roman Catholic Church of his day. Which involved beating himself as a punishment for sinful thoughts and desires, and involved just hours-long confessions. So much so that once one of his confessors said to him, "Look, go sin, then come back and confess." Yeah. <laughs> he was scrupulous about all the ways in which his heart felt sort of disconnected and drifting from Christ. And he was playing. And the more he beat himself and the more he treated himself harshly, the more he gave himself to the ascetic life, the less sure he was of his standing with Christ. It's because of what Paul says here in verse 23, that approach to holiness, that approach to life in Christ, it is powerless. It is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here's the thing, the flesh wants what it wants and it will keep wanting what it wants no matter your rules. This is why Paul says in Romans, you must put to death the flesh. You can't leave the thing living and try to contain it. You got to kill it. Because it will want what it wants and it will keep wanting what it wants no matter what you do. And, and, and trying to sort of just manage the flesh is a lot like trying to sort of nail jello to a wall. You nail it in one place and it just sort of shape shifts and moves down to another place. There can be no, pl- no peace between the spirit and the flesh, the flesh must be put to death. And this is why this kind of approach to the Christian life uh, for sanctification and holiness and true growth in Christ is fruitless. It is powerless. It is a well-intended strategy that sounds wise, but it winds up in a different kind of life than the one Christ has for us. So how do we apply this sort of first point we're thinking about this question, why does he write this letter? Well, I think it's important for us to recognize that there is such a thing as worldly religion. By worldly, I do not mean the kind of religion that says it's okay to go out and do all the things that the world does. That's one form of worldly religion. Here, I think Paul is concerned with that worldly religion which attempts in the flesh, in human effort, in human strength to sort of do what only God can do by His Spirit. That, that effort to sort of develop rules and, and laws and approaches to God that, that are made, sort of self-made, to use the language that he says here, that are according to the sensuous mind, the, the sort of human mind and not the spirit, to try and use those things to, to, to sort of control the spirit rather than using the spiritual weapons of Christ in order to live in the spirit. There's always a temptation to God's people to slip away from life in the Word and in the Spirit and to slip over into human tradition. You remember the interactions that our Lord Jesus had sometimes with scribes and Pharisees. In Mark chapter 7, for example, verses 6 and 9, you can write this down and look at it later. He's, he's being questioned about the law and, and some of the Pharisees' traditions around aspects of the law. And Jesus says this in Mark 7, verses sixty nine. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but what? Their hearts are far from me. Then he says this, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, in other words, teaching as biblical truth, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. Now you have to ask yourself the question, were the Pharisees self-consciously and intentionally trying to do that? I don't think they were. These were Bible guys. They took the letter of the law seriously. And yet, however well-intentioned they might have been, Jesus looks at them and says, oh, you bumping your gums, but your heart way across town. You you got a fine way of defending your tradition and in some translations, making the word of God of no effect. That's the problem. The traditions of men make the word of God powerless. that's, That's another thing that cannot be reconciled. God's word with man's ideas. God is not like us. He is higher than us. His ways are higher than ours. Our our word, our ways are infinitely lower than God. So we are a people of the book. We are people who depend upon the revelation in order to know the mind of God and how to live for God. And we must, like all churches and all traditions in, in all of history who have sought to worship God, we must be careful that we don't slide over into our traditions and have them supplant God's word. That's another way to put it. The Christian church is formed by the gospel. It is grown by the gospel. It is kept by the gospel. Tim Keller likes to put it, the gospels is not just the ABCs of the Christian life, but the XYZs too. The gospel is not just a doorway into a relationship with Christ. The gospel is the whole house. It is the doorway, the hallway, the attending rooms, it is the back porch, it is the, it is the balcony, it is everything. And so life in Christ looks like this deep delighting more and more in what Christ has done for us in the gospel. If you're new to ARC, one of our core principles or values as a church is precisely this, the message of the gospel. We have something we call our five M's and that's the first one. It's the first one because the Bible makes it the first one. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that I delivered to you what was of first importance. And he goes on to unpack the gospel that Christ died for sinners. The Son of God came into the world, took upon Himself human flesh, lived in perfect obedience to God the Father in all the ways that we failed to, and then some. And then having lived a perfectly righteous and obedient life to God the Father, He did something even more extraordinary. He took our place in God's judgment. He voluntarily and lovingly went to the cross of Calvary. And there he was crucified by Roman soldiers. But worse than that, there he was punished by God the Father in our place. The wrath of God that we deserved was poured out upon the Son of God whom we did not deserve. But he gave himself for us freely. He was crucified. He died. He was buried for three days, and on the third day, satisfied with his sacrifice, accepting that sacrifice on our behalf, the Father raised him from the grave. And in that resurrection, the Father extends to us eternal life, eternal love, eternal fellowship, and all the riches that are in Christ that we will be discovering for all eternity. It's that message that gives sinners life. It's that work of Christ on the cross and in obedience to the Father that provides our righteousness and our forgiveness. It's His resurrection that that provides our justification. It's His coming again that gives us hope of sharing in His glory. That picture of glory that Sister Eli read for us from Isaiah 60, that's not just ancient promise and poetry to ancient Israel. That's a commercial, a foreshadowing, a movie trailer of the glory that we have with Christ and we'll see when He comes. A glory that God gives (laughs) to sinners who would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. This is the message that runs through this whole book. This is the message That created the Colossian church. This is the message that created this church. This is the message by which Christians must live. This is why Paul wrote this letter. Notice something else. Without the message of the gospel, a congregation ceases to be a church, they cease to have the very power of God unto salvation and the message that brings hope. And This is why Paul wants to warn us, however well we start, like the Colossians, standing firm in faith and in good order, to still be vigilant against this ensnaring, enslaving philosophy that seems right, but is according to human tradition and the elemental principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Which brings us to our second question. Who then is this Christ? Who is Jesus in the book of Colossians? Listen, beloved, some things are so beautiful they must be sung. Prose won't do, you need poetry to communicate it. And perhaps the best place to get a glimpse of Jesus is in the Christ hymn in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Uh, This poetry, this hymn, this song that Paul breaks out in. Maybe it was an early creed, but notice who Jesus is in this letter. Beloved, it would be hard to find in all of the Bible another six verses with so much glorious truth about Jesus. This is high Christology. Paul is introducing us to the cosmic Christ. The only thing I can think of, and it's way, way beneath this, but the only thing I can think of that even starts to come close to this as an illustration for how glorious this is that Paul is talking about, some of you will know the comedian Steve Harvey. I'm not recommending his comedy. (laughs) I'm not. I'm not. But Steve Harvey did this thing once where he introduced Jesus. Anybody ever see that clip? Uh, You need to go Google that if you hadn't seen that. Where he introduces Jesus and I wish I could redo it for you. It leaves you on your feet applauding and and giving ovation to Christ. And I think that's what was meant to happen when Paul wrote these six verses here in verses 15 to 20. You read these six verses and, and we're meant to be on our feet shouting. We're meant to be on our feet praising what we are hearing about this Jesus. Because what Paul tells us here is this Jesus is not some, other, some ordinary cat, right? I don't know if you know this, but Jesus was a fairly regular name in the first century world. It's right, like James. There are a whole lot of Jesus is walking around. But this Jesus, the son of God, this hymn can be divided into two halves. The first halves there, verses 15 to 17, show us that he is the Lord of all creation. Notice there, He has made all things. So by Him all things were made, and and in Him all things were made, whether visible or invisible, whether in heaven or on earth, whether thrones or dominions or powers or rulers, all things were made by Him, and in Him all things consist. They hold together. He is the one holding the universe together by the word of His power, according to Hebrews chapter 1. He is the Lord of all. And all things have been made for him. I don't care what you see from cloud to zebra. I don't care what you experience in this ball of clay. Christ made it and it belongs to him. And not only do we see Christ supreme in creation, but we see him supreme in redemption. Notice in verse 18 now, the text turns away from the natural creation, and he begins to talk about redemption, and he begins to talk about reconciliation. Christ is the head of the church. He is the firstborn from among the dead. That means he's the first fruit of the resurrection. He's the first one to get up from the grave. He's the first one to take off the linen cloths. And every other resurrection that happens is happening only because it's connected to him. And he is the one who has reconciled the church to himself. Any reconciliation with God comes through Jesus Christ, the son. He's the only one that ends the warfare between sinner and a holy God. He's the only one who brings the wandering sinner away from their lost ways back home to glory. This is the Jesus who rules not only in creation, but rules in salvation too. Paul says, now listen, you got some people there in Colossae puffing your mind up with all kinds of things in these mystery religions and combining it with Judaism and combining it with paganism. Let me tell you something. Ain't but one Lord. Ain't but one God. And it is Christ Jesus, the son. Paul said, I don't care what you heard. Let me tell you about Jesus. We see here that Jesus is the creator, the image of the invisible God. In other words, if you want to see what God looks like, look at Jesus. He's the one that came into the world and revealed in flesh God, the heart of God, the ways of God, the mind of God. Are you ever lost for what is God like? Open your Bible to the Gospels and read the life of Jesus. You'll be seeing before you the display of God himself. He is the creator of all things. And, and notice not only that is he created, but he said before he's redeemer. Let's see how full his redemption is. Look down in verse 19. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Notice in Colossians 2 verse 9, almost exact same thing. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily And don't stop there. Verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Try to get your mind around that. All of God is living in Jesus. And all of Jesus is living in us. The fullness of God in the Son of God and the fullness of Son in the church. And this is why any promise of any other religion or any claim of any other religion that you need something on top of Jesus in order to be fulfilled is completely misguided. Reject that rubbish on the face of it. Uh, you can't get no more fuller than to be full of Christ. You, you can't get uh, filled out more. You can't get more satisfied. You, you can't get more blown up with righteousness and goodness and holiness than to be filled with Jesus. Paul says, don't don't forsake the truth. Don't get caught up in some other philosophy. Don't let nobody turn you around. Don't let nobody get you off the track, beloved. Let me tell you something. When Jesus came into the world, God came with him. And when Jesus came into your life, God came into your life. You are full with Christ. Oh, He's not only our creator, he's our redeemer. Notice in verse 20. It's through Jesus that God reconciles all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I don't know if you've thought about this before. But Christ's redemption isn't just for human beings. It's cosmic. There's something even in heaven reconciled to God because of Christ the whole creation which is groaning in travail and futility Paul says in Romans it's waiting the adoption of the sons of God because when our adoption is complete the whole creation itself will be set free from that futility and will be renewed in Christ Christ didn't just die for our salvation praise God that he did and if he only did that that'd be enough to praise him but in his death too is the provision for the renewal of all things And the reconciliation of all things in heaven and on earth to God. I don't know what all that means. But I trust it is bigger than anything I've ever thought before. And we will have infinite time, if it can be called time, to discover more and more what this means. Christ is our Redeemer and Christ is our treasure. Notice that Paul continues to refer to Christ as God's mystery. So look with me in Colossians 1, verses 25 to 27. Paul writes there, of which I became a minister, referring to the gospel and the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. What is that stewardship, Paul? To make the word of God fully known. What do you mean? The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Well, what's the mystery, Paul? To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says God had a secret. He didn't tell it all to the Old Testament saints. He left them some breadcrumbs to follow the trail. But then God started talking when he sent his son into the world. He started telling his business. He started revealing the mystery. And the mystery is this that God had intended even before the worlds began that he would not only save Israel but through the Messiah of Israel he would save the Gentiles. And in the Gentiles he would reveal to Israel the riches of his mystery. What is that mystery? It's Christ. The hope of glory. Christ in us. The hope You ever wonder why you sometimes long for heaven? Why this world feels strange to you sometimes? You ever feel homeless in your own house? Like you ain't supposed to be there? Well, if you're Christ, it's because He's in you, beloved. And He is in you as a deposit, as a confidence, as a guarantee of coming glory. Beloved, if if you're in Christ, you've been remade, and you've been remade for glory. You've not been remade for being bored, or, or for mundaneness, or for routine. You have been made for glory, to see the splendor, and the greatness, and the beauty, and the brightness of God, your maker. You have been made to enjoy the beauty of God for all of time, and there's something in you that aches from time to time to see that beauty. There's something in you that longs from time to time to escape all of this distraction, so That you might look at your Savior. There's something in you sometimes that just speaks to you that this ain't right. I ain't home. And you long for heaven. This is why when you sing, I can only imagine something in you takes off. Even when you were flat, even when you were dull spiritually, you began to sing that. And you begin to ask those questions of those songs. Will I dance in your presence? Or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing? Hallelujah. Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. And that imagination rises up out of the presence of Christ in the human soul. The hope, the confidence of glory. Christ is our treasure. He is our riches. He is this mystery that God has given us. Look at Colossians 2 verses 2 and 3. Paul talks in verses 1 and 2 about how he struggles for the churches, not only the church at Colossae, but at Laodicea, and and indeed all the churches that have never seen him face to face. He is toiling and struggling, he says in chapter 1, verse 28. He says in chapter 1, verse 28, he wants to present the church mature in Christ. And and so he's laboring and struggling for these things. And, And notice how he prays for the Colossians, what he hopes for them in verses 2 and 3. He hopes that they all reach to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Maybe an illustration will help. It, it, it's not a good illustration. You don't come close to these two verses. How many of you enjoyed Easter egg hunts as kids? How many of you enjoy your children running around looking perhaps for for Easter eggs? No offense to those of you who've gotten so holy you don't do Easter egg hunts anymore. No offense. There's something about hiding that little thing and watching the kids run around mad trying to find every egg and and, and get the eggs and, and the joy of that discovery. That egg to them is a kind of treasure. Jesus uses another analogy. Maybe it's better to use divinely inspired analogies. Matthew chapter 13, I believe it is, around verse 43 and 44. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man finds it, he goes and he sells all he has. And for the joy of that treasure, he sells all he has and he buys that field. I think this text we might say that if you're a Christian, you're on an Easter egg hunt. Only you're not looking for the treasure of an egg. You're looking for what God has hidden in His Son. In Him are all the riches and the treasures. In Him is understanding and knowledge and wisdom. And we are meant for all of our days on this this boring ball and all of our days in the world to come to be ransacking Christ and to be dipping our hands into the treasure that is Christ and and pulling out gold coins and silver coins and, and gold goblets and ruby studded crowns for in Christ is all of our treasure. It's like God has sent us on an Easter egg hunt and said, there's the last big egg. Go over there and look. Go over there and delight. Go over there and find the riches I prepared for you in your son. And this is why if we're Christians, we're never quite satisfied when we're forgetful of Jesus. We all get distracted. We all have hearts that sometimes grow cold and We get busy and we look up and we have forgotten to pray and we've pushed off the word and we have for a time stopped going to church or some such thing. And we may get complacent in that, but we never get satisfied in it because that's not where our treasure is. And and there's something even intuitive in us, the witness of Christ in us, the hope of glory that keeps drawing us back to God's people, drawing us back to God's word, drawing us back to God in prayer. Because we want those riches that come with Christ. To the persons here who are not yet Christians, when we tell you about Jesus, we are telling you about the best thing we know the best one we know. We're telling you about the one who will satisfy you with goodness. In whose presence there is pleasure and fullness of joy forevermore. And we not we don't want to sort of in saying that I'm not trying to tempt you to try to follow Jesus for your own selfish desire. No, you come to Jesus because he's Jesus. Because he's Lord, because he's creator because he made you, and because you owe him your worship. You come to Jesus because you recognize that that you have not given that to him, and that's sin, and you have gone your own way and followed other philosophies and, and found yourself in more sin. You come to him because you're turning from that sin, and you're turning to him, and you finally recognize that he is the treasure. And here's what you discover. Sometimes you do that, and your life gets harder. Sometimes you do that, And your life gets remarkably better. But whether your life gets better or whether your life gets harder, if you've got Jesus, this is what everybody discovers. He is the treasure. He is the great one. He is the riches. We are inviting you to be rich toward God by believing in his son. And beloved, here's the wonderful thing. Finding this treasure, well, it's not like sneaking into Smaug's castle as if you were on Lord of the Rings and dodging the dragon and doing some adventurous thing that only you could do. No, actually coming to this treasure is forgetting yourself, confessing your sin, and trusting this Jesus to be your Lord and to be your Savior. And all that He is, He freely gives to you. We're inviting you to your greatest happiness and your greatest joy. Don't deny yourself. Come to him. Trust in Christ and live richly in his love. And church, there's something else for us to note here, just thinking about this, who this Jesus is. We're going to praise God for faithful leaders who teach us the word of God. Paul has mentioned Epaphras a couple of times in this letter, and he refers to him again, I think, in in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2, when he says, just as you were taught, what it was Epaphras who taught them the word of God. And Paul gives his own example in chapter 1, verse 24, down to chapter 2, verse 1, how he struggles and how that interesting phrase, I wonder if it caught your attention in verse 24, how he fills up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions in his own body. Not to mean that there was something short in Christ's sacrifice, but he is so joined Christ in the ministry that the sufferings of Christ seem to overflow in his life. Why does he do that? Because he's faithful And that's what the Colossians are commended for, even in the greeting in verse 2 of chapter 1. To the saints and what? Faithful brothers in Christ. We are to praise God wherever we see faithfulness and wherever we receive it through his ministers. And so it's appropriate to praise God for Jahil as he teaches God's word. It's appropriate to praise God for Jeremy as he's now off visiting a church and uh, working to plant a church. It's appropriate to praise those brothers who don't necessarily preach a lot, but nonetheless are teaching us God's word and encouraging us like Pastor Andrew and Pastor Matt. Faithfulness among God's people, especially where the word is dispensed. That's meant to be treasure because it's by this word that we get to know Christ and know him more fully. So let us be a congregation that always rejoices to either suffer for the gospel as servants and always rejoice as recipients of the gospel for God has given us himself in that message. Which brings us to our final point. What does it mean to be a Christian according to Colossians? Well, really this is the bulk of the letter from chapter 2 verse 6 all the way to the end of chapter 4. This is what we're going to be discovering as we Uh, do this series in the book of Colossians. But let me just give you the skeletal system here. Let me just give you some things that come with being a Christian according to Colossians. First of all, to be a Christian means we walk with Jesus. That's what we see in verses 6 and 7. We are to walk in Him. Just as we receive the Lord Jesus, we are to walk in Him. Uh, This is a, a sort of picture of fellowship and following. We walk with him, not as people being dragged along by shackles and ropes, but we walk with him as two men on a path having a good time catching up. Or two women holding hands encouraging one another. It's in fellowship and love that we keep in step with him. Well, what does that walking look like? Well, that's unfolded for us like flowers in a, in a, or petals in a flower. So it means we are united with Jesus. Chapter 2, verses 9 to 13. Notice what the Lord says in His Word. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The key phrase throughout that paragraph? In him and with him. We are united to this Jesus spiritually. That's what it means to be a Christian. And all of God's blessings come to us as a consequence of this union. This is why Paul says, for example, in chapter 3, that we're to set our minds on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And he says in verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're not even sitting in this room, beloved. You're sitting at the right hand of the Father in Christ because you have been spiritually united to Him by faith. And everything that's happened to Christ has vicariously happened to us. So we think about that in, in that paragraph in chapter 2. Christ was, was circumcised. We have been circumcised in Him. Christ was buried. We have been buried with Him too. But Christ was raised alive and, and with Him we have been made alive uh, in Christ. So all that has happened in Christ's life has happened to us vicariously through faith in Him. And so our lives are swallowed up in His. We are seated together with Him in the heavenly places. And when God looks at us, He sees His Son. This is part of our treasure. This is what it means to be a Christian. It also means we are forgiven in Jesus. That's what we saw in verses 14 and 15. He's nailed our sins to the cross. He's disarmed the rulers and authorities. Those are those spiritual enemies that we have. He has defanged them. He has taken away their weapons. He has completely triumphed over them in Christ. And so even our enemies spiritually are defeated in Him. What does it mean? It means we're free. Colossians 2 verse 17. He just talked about let no one pass judgment on you with food and drink or Sabbaths and new moons and so on. Why? He says these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. There's a play on words there. That word substance could be translated body. All those rules are the shadows that the body casts. The body, the substance, is Christ. That's who we have. He is ours and we are His. And, and notice that verse 19, the, the freedom that we have. So let no one disqualify you in verse 18. Verse 19, they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. There it is right there. That's the growth that Paul wants for the Colossians. That's the growth that God wants from us. The growth that comes from God. Being joined to Christ the head who nourishes us. That's a different growth than the growth that comes from self-effort and asceticism. It means we are free from those rules. We're free from those regulations. Notice how he puts it uh, a little bit in verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He says, why are you submitting to those regulations at the end of verse 20? And why does he say, why are you submitting to those regulations? Well, just above that, why is if you were still alive in the world? My Christian brother and sister, you do realize that we are dead to the world. The world has been crucified to us and we to it. We are those who live as Christians as if we were dead to all that the world holds out to us. And it's because we're dead to all that the world holds out to us that those regulations which come from the world, do not taste, do not touch, do not da 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 have no hold upon us. And we don't submit to them because we are dead to the world and alive to Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. That death is radical in the freedom it creates. Which means also we are freed in to be heavenly minded. That's what we see in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3. Set your mind on things above, not things on the earth. It means that to be a Christian, it means we are free to flee from sin and to pursue holiness. That's what we see in that long section from verse 5 to verse 17 of chapter 3. We put off the old man of sin. You see that there in chapter 3 verse 5? But then we are to put on virtue, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, all of these virtues. Until verse 7, whatever we do in word or deed, we do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through him. It's the life that God has marked out for us. And to be a Christian means that we have the Lord ruling over our relationships. So notice in chapter 3, verse 18, down to chapter 4, verse 1, Paul comes to the household. And he talks about husbands loving their wives the way Christ loves the church. So use the language of Ephesians 5. And wives submitting to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Fathers, verse 21, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. He goes on to slaves and, and owners who would have been in the same household. That they too, whether slave or master, are to live in such a way as to remember that the Lord is watching them. And that they serve the Lord. So the Bible is holding out to us in Christ, a relationship with Christ, which changes everything. Read this letter this afternoon. Take you about 10 or 15 minutes. And notice how in almost every paragraph, Paul keeps coming back to Jesus and the gospel. That everything that he says that we are called to do grows up out of Jesus and the gospel. It's often that people say that we are to preach Christ to ourselves. I think that's a good practice. I think Colossians gives us a model of that. Of daily preaching the gospel to ourselves and living out that gospel in all that the Lord gives us to do. Of daily seeking our riches in Christ and finding their fullness in Him. We're going to, Lord willing, be discovering the treasures that we have in Christ. Every life apart from Christ really suffers poverty but every life joined to Christ receives the infinite riches of God in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this incredible letter, for all that it holds out to us in Christ your Son. And we ask for your grace, and we ask for the filling of your Spirit, To Lord lay hold to the full riches of the treasure that we have in Christ and gain the full assurance of salvation which you offer us in Christ. We long to be filled with the fullness that is in Christ. Oh Lord, help us to know these realities more and more, to live in them, oh Lord, and to enjoy them more and more, and to bring you glory as a consequence more and more. Do this, O Lord, for the honor of your name we pray and for our joy in Jesus' name. Amen.